0: Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and each week we celebrate and commiserate with best selling authors, experts like today, and moms around the world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 144 of Atomic Moms. It's so crazy when this episode releases, Eliza is going to be nine weeks old. That's crazy. I'm starting to mess around on Insta stories, you know, Instagram stories. Uh, I, I have so many silly things that are happening around the house, and I want to share them with you all. And the podcast is only once a week, so I'm going to start sharing more on that. And also, that way they erase, and I won't be humiliated for the rest of my life in sharing these messy moments of motherhood with a preschooler and an infant, This episode, I recorded two and a half weeks after giving birth. Dr. Berlin came over to my home, and we had a lovely discussion. I waited until now to share it because I didn't want every week to be me complaining about how tired I am. But guess what? It's that anyway. (laughs) Because, uh, yeah, you know, it's a marathon, right? It's a marathon. And... It's getting easier in the middle of the night, but I thought I'd hold off on this one to mix things up a bit for parents with the older children. But, you know, when I look back at this episode, it's really for everyone because he talks about uh, helping the body help itself and raising four kids in LA and the super cute way he met his wife. By the way, they are both doulas. So we also talk about, like, what if they both get that labor call in the middle of the night? How do they handle childcare then? If you're curious about unmedicated births, we chat about that. We talk about breech births and v which is a vaginal birth after C-section. Uh, he arrived at my house with a baby gift. It was the Ollie Swaddle, and it's got this like superhuman Velcro, and I love it. And it was so sweet of him to bring me a gift. And also the packaging of the Ollie Swaddle is so adorable. I'm going to keep that box forever. If you're out of the baby stage, again, it's still a super fun episode, Next week, we're getting serious. Uh, I'm sharing an interview with a Harvard researcher, an early childhood development expert. Her name is Suzanne Buffard. You know, she's been written up in The Atlantic and The New Yorker. She's got a book called The Most Important Year, Pre-Kindergarten, and the Future of Our Children. So we're going to be talking about the universal pre-K debate. And we're also going to be sharing some teacher tips that we can use on our kids after school. So, okay, here's my episode with Dr. Berlin. He's a huge presence and a big personality in the Los Angeles mama scene, and I can't wait to introduce you. Here you go. Hello, everybody. I think my newborn is 16 days old. I'm not really sure. I am having a flashback to my recent interview with Dr. Karp where he said that being a newborn mother, is um, you're basically like a drunk driver because you're so sleep-deprived. So um, I'm getting behind the wheel of this podcast today, (laughs) and we might go off-roading. I have Dr. Elliot Berlin in studio with me. He's doing a a doctor call, a nighttime doctor call for me. I'm going to read his bio. He is an award-winning prenatal chiropractor, childbirth educator, and labor doula. His Informed Pregnancy Project aims to utilize multiple forms of media to compile and deliver unbiased information about pregnancy and childbirth to empower new and expectant parents to make informed choices regarding their pregnancy and parenting journey. The documentary films, Informed Pregnancy Podcast, and new YouTube series, The Real Midwives of Los Angeles, can be found at informedpregnancy.com. Dr. Elliot Berlin, thank you for coming on Atomic Moms podcast. I got to say, it's been a long time coming. I wanted you on forever. No, oh, well, thank you for having me. Anne. So I'm so happy that you're on, and I'm happy that I uh, got pregnant again and um, ended up in your office yeah. and on your table.
1: You, I just want to say you did not have to get pregnant just to get me on the podcast. <laughs> I would have come. I just, I'm ready to commiserate. That's my favorite part.
0: There you go. Well, first thing I want to say because of my irritable uterus. For new listeners, I was on modified bed rest. I was getting these crazy hard contractions for 30 minutes to an hour at a time. And when I went to Dr. Berlin, I was having one and you got to feel
1: it. Yeah. Will you
0: please tell my listeners that I wasn't making it up? You were not making it up.
1: It, you, it was hard and strong. And and actually, you, you look great through it. In fact, one of the things I want to commiserate right now is the fact that you are 16 days postpartum. You have more energy than me. You have more glow than me. You look amazing. And I'm starting to feel really crappy about myself.
0: That's what I'm here for. Thank
1: you. <laughs> I needed that little kick in the pants. I might work out tomorrow.
0: No, I'm just incredibly sleep-deprived. And, by the way, modified bed rest. Let me tell you, uh, atrophy is the new L.A. workout. Because oh. it's, um, yeah, I have, like, little chicken arms right now because I haven't exercised since April. Welcome to my world. Um, Yeah, your chicken arms. You work out so hard on a daily basis getting women ready for birth.
1: I do. Yeah, I do, but, like, 13 hours of body work every day.
0: That's so crazy.
1: I can beat most people on arm wrestle.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. When you started out, did you start with chiropractics or with massage?
1: Both. Um, that's a good question. I I started out becoming a surgeon. That was my dream. I wanted to be like the world's greatest. I don't even know what, but some kind of surgeon. And uh like when I was seven, I took my first CPR class and that's what did it. I was like, wow, this is really cool. You can help people. They're dying and you can save them. And then I took like responding to emergencies and first aid and, and lifeguard training. And then as a teenager, I was teaching for the American Red Cross. And then I became an EMT, and I started working in ambulances when I was 19. And uh, it was just really, I was so excited to be the world's greatest. I don't know what kind of surgeon.
0: Uh, A real hero complex, I see.
1: That's my thing. Um, (laughs) Thanks for pointing that out. Uh, My father, unfortunately, when I was young that year, um, he died from a uh, sudden cardiac arrhythmia. He was 48, and it just like... Somewhat related to medication that he took that he didn't need to take. He wasn't, like, that sick. There was nothing crazy wrong with him. But he had foot pain, and he went to take something for the foot pain. And um, it was a um, little—apparently interacted with something else that he took. And um, that contributed to his big arrhythmia and his early, untimely death. So,
0: And how old were you again?
1: Nineteen. You were nineteen. So I took a big step back from— my love of pharmaceuticals and surgical procedures, oh. up until then I thought, you know, I was putting together, I was already dating my wife and, and, you know, if she was sick, I thought the greatest doctor I could be, I would take these little combinations of something for the pain and something for the fever and something for her cough. And, and I thought that's the greatest doctor who knows how to control every symptom with the right drug, the right amount of the right drug. Uh, And I took a big step back from that, and I researched, uh, you know, we got married soon after that, and I just, everybody thought I was going to go to medical school, and I was like, I don't know about that, let me take a little break. And so I started working at a pizza store, and my in-laws were less thrilled with that career path. Yeah. uh, I studied all the different alternatives. I studied a lot of them. and
0: While you were working at the pizza shop?
1: Yeah, I was working like every odd job I could find, including the pizza shop.
0: Were you afraid of... The commitment to medicine, or facing death on a daily basis in that way.
1: No, because I was working in ambulances still, and oh my gosh, so
0: you're still in it though? You're still in all the drama?
1: Yeah, the ambulances and death didn't scare me at all. I felt invincible. I was young, strong. I felt invincible. Even even being around those kind of emergencies never really phased me. I had a the one time maybe it did. I had a college. Uh, sort of classmate who we couldn't save. You know, he had a, a, a rare disease and we just couldn't save him. You know, his his hepatic artery to his liver just ruptured and there was no way to save him. All his blood bled out inside his belly and uh, he couldn't be saved. So that was the one time it sort of makes you feel like, hmm, he's my age, you know, he's somebody I know. But it wasn't that. It was that I wanted to have a more holistic approach without even knowing what that word was. I wanted to help the body help itself rather than—and prevent the need for all these drugs and, and surgical interventions. Not that I don't didn't like them and don't respect them. I respect them even more now because I see how they have the ability to really do powerful things in a good way, but they also have the really powerful ability to do bad things. And so I wanted to find ways that I can help people be healthy naturally.
0: And so— you married your high school sweetheart, I'm guessing, because if you started dating <laughs> back then.
1: Uh, I actually, we met in summer camp.
0: That's adorable.
1: Thanks. And uh, How old were you? I, it was that year. I was I was 19 and she was 17.
0: And you guys were working there?
1: We were working there. She was a lifeguard. She was a water ski instructor, and I was um, doing a million different jobs, one of which was like maintenance on the fleet of golf carts and motorboats. And the first time we met, I had just gotten done doing oil changes on all the uh, vehicles, and she had just come out of the lake, and somebody introduced us. She had lake hair and no makeup, and had engine grease all over me. (laughs) So it was love at second sight. The next time (laughs) we uh, saw each other, um, I really, you know, I just never dated anybody. I was just very casual, didn't want to get into relationships, and enjoyed all, all of my friendships with guys and girls alike as a friend. Uh, and something about her just really grabbed
0: me. What do you think it was?
1: I don't know. It's um, like what's one thing? I loved talking to her. It just the way the way she listens and hears things and and has feedback on them. And um, I love listening to her things. What made her tick? Uh, other people, you know, you have stories and you have a good time and. You laugh together, but for her, I just love talking. We could talk for hours and hours and hours. And she's gorgeous. I, I love looking at her. I love talking to her. But it was like the whole—she well, she's the first person who, when I wasn't with her, I really missed her.
0: And you guys are in practice together, correct? Because yes. she's a therapist.
1: She's a therapist. She's a pre- and postnatal psychologist. So it's mostly pregnancy, postpartum, and parenting.
0: And so you ended up having four children— Yes. 7, nine, eleven, thirteen.
1: Yes, they were born in two thousand four, six, eight, and 10. <laughs> On June 1st, June 7th, June 10th, and April 30th. We're German, so it's sort of like <laughs> precision.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I'm not sure why that happened. It wasn't a plan. Um, I found out later it's nine months after Rosh Hashanah. is is June. Yeah, so I think it was the teenies.
0: There you go. That's yeah. so funny because I was thinking like— all the September babies that are in Sabrina's class. It's always yeah. like, yeah, New Year's. <laughs> yeah,
1: champagne babies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But so for me, teeny.
0: There you go. And so what's it like having four kids in L.A.? I mean, we're going to get to all the pregnancy stuff and the body work stuff and the VBAC stuff, but I got to ask you, four kids in Los Angeles, that's ambitious.
1: I think Jim Gaffigan said it best. <laughs> um, he said, if you want to know what it's like to have a fourth baby, just picture yourself drowning and someone hands you a baby
0: your wife was a lifeguard. She was
1: a lifeguard, so it's sort of perfect. I, without her, I don't think we would have been able to do this. Um, four kids. Well, you know, yours are little. Yeah. So they're very dependent on you. Yeah. And what's even worse is they want to be independent. Yes. Um, so it's double work for you. I, I think that at 7, 9, 11, 13, we're in this little sweet spot where the little guy's not so dependent anymore. He can do a lot of stuff on his own. Um, and the oldest one is not so meanager-ish that it's yeah. causing us, you know, we haven't had to medicate ourselves yet. So um, I think right now we're in a li- really blissful state. About two years ago it was the first time I was sitting in the living room and the whole family was there. And it felt like quiet. And I really, it's one of the few moments in life I remember vividly. I was like, is everybody here? That's weird. <laughs> Who's one <missing>? was reading, <laughs> two of them were playing a game. Like they don't need that much for you anymore.
0: That's amazing. And when we sat down to start recording, um, I was like, put on Wi-Fi on your phone because you were turning it off because you're very respectful. Uh, and you have a podcast of your own, so you understand I the sound it. stuff. Yeah. But uh, I, I was like, do the Wi-Fi because you said that you might have a mom going into labor yes.
1: right now
0: um, as a doula. And so how do you juggle the unpredictable nature of being
1: a doula? I used to freak out about it. Um, More than anything, I used to freak out about what happens if two clients go into labor at the same time.
0: I was personally freaked out about that with my labor. I was afraid that another client of my doulas would also— Would call your doula?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Didn't happen.
0: Didn't happen. Oh, but you know what? She had just come off another
1: mom seven hours before. Yes. So that's what happens. Like— I've, first of all, we have a team of us. I I should specify, even though I'm a doula and I've done full birth doula work, for the most part, I come now and do body work. And I do body work for as many or a few hours as somebody wants it, as long as it's being really helpful. So sometimes, oftentimes, there's another doula besides me who comes beginning to end for that birth. And I'm there for four hours, six hours, eight hours in the middle, depending on what they want. And for that reason, I know I'm not going to get stuck in a birth for three days like right. I used to when I went to the whole birth. My wife is a doula, too, and she's traditional doula. She goes beginning to end.
0: Oh, my gosh. I just got so much anxiety about you guys having to figure out what to do with your four kids.
1: Right. So the great news is at 11 and 13, like, they're old enough. They can—the couple of times that it's happened that we both got called out, it was sort of like— I think three or four o'clock in the morning when my wife left and realizing that she had to leave, she laid out all their clothing and she made sure their lunches were packed. I got called closer to five 30 in the morning. And so I immediately got up and made like a continental hotel breakfast and just left Aww. it on the counter for them. Yeah. And then I woke up the, the kids, got them dressed and let them go right back to bed.
0: That's genius.
1: And then I just <laughs> woke up the oldest and I said, Hey, look, you're going to have to drive the kids to school today. He's 13. And he was like, sort of not fully awake, and he said, what do you mean I don't drive? I'm like, okay, then you're just going to have to do everything else except drive the kids to school today. And he's like, oh, that's great. And the truth is because we're surrounded by great neighbors whose hmm. kids go to the same school. So we just make plans, you know, and they got up. They were already dressed. Their bags their were already packed. Their lunches were already packed. They had a great time having breakfast. They have a phone. That we use that's just one phone for all the kids for when they go out of the house or when we go out of the house. Mm. And so we were able to text the whole time and make sure it went smoothly and that's it, you know. I stopped worrying about it because you always end up worrying and it always ends up working out. Yep. It does. Every doula has the same issue. And after you do it for a couple of years, you just realize it's going to work out.
0: What was the moment that made you decide, you know what, I'm going to pursue this? Because obviously, you'd been working with pregnant women for how many years before you decided the, to be a doula?
1: A long time. Um, going from the super surgeon yeah. to holistic healthcare, I studied a lot of modalities and I fell in love with the combination of chiropractic and massage together. It's the musculoskeletal system. Chiropractic handles more of the skeletal, and massage handles the muscular, which is also ligaments and tendons and scar tissue. And together they made beautiful sense to me, getting them from both sides. So I went to school for both. I went to chiropractic school during the morning and massage school, the whole first year of chiropractic school. I went to massage school at nighttime. And I started practicing massage therapy through the next three years of chiropractic school. And they just they worked just how I wanted them to. Together they were very powerful. It was like the peanut butter and chocolate of of holistic health care. It was like Justin's. Are they a the sponsor? Okay. Oh, they should be I think now. They should be. Justin's are yummy. Come on, <laughs> so
0: good. Just like with a spoon, just oh. or well, that's the jar. But yeah, also, I mean gelsons always has the cups like yeah. right at the checkout counter. I and know they, they know I'm
1: weak. Yeah.
0: Ah. Um. So, how many years had you been doing that before you became the, a doula?
1: So I went. After I finished chiropractic school, I opened a practice in Georgia, which is where I went to school. But the next year, my wife finished her doctorate in psychology, and she had to go to Nebraska for a year to do an internship. So I went to carry the bags and everything, and um, we were like two Jews in Nebraska for a year, like (laughs) the two Jews in Nebraska for the year. It felt like that. And uh, it was great. I loved it. i I grew up so sheltered in New York City, and now I was That's thinking,
0: a ridiculous statement by the way.
1: what which part?
0: <laughs> sheltered in New York City? I mean, I guess because. There are a lot of other Jewish people in New York City.
1: Well, but my community—I was in Staten Island, so okay. I'm not, it's just sort of like the armpit of New York City. But it was—it's um, not the big melting pot at that the city is. Gotcha. And you're just surrounded by community. We all have mm. to walk on Saturday to the same So it's—you just live very close to each other. And, and growing up, all my friends were like other Orthodox Jew kids. And, uh, so going to Nebraska and Georgia was like, oh, I awesome. loved it. And I was yeah. like, wow, there's all sorts of interesting people out there, different religions and faiths and colors and ethnicities. And I love people. That's, I, that's why I love what I do. I learn something from everybody I meet and it's just fascinating all day long. I'm just meeting people and, and just learning cool things. And, uh, so after Nebraska, when I was there, I was at a practice that was pretty high volume. So I was able to just see different, different patterns that you can't see in a smaller volume practice. Mm -hmm. And one of them led me to really scratch my head and come up with this connection between certain types of back pain and infertility. Really? Yeah. Not everybody, but a specific mechanism.
0: Are you allowed to talk about that?
1: I am at liberty to talk about (laughs) that. Yeah.
0: I mean, quickly, if there's one listener out there who's like, wait, I'm dealing with this, and what's what's." What type of back pain
1: is it? it? It's back pain in primarily people who have no trauma. Uh Uh-huh. And when they treat it with like chiropractic or massage, it gets better for a little bit, like, but just a few days and then comes back. Better for a few days and then comes back. You do x-rays or other imaging, nothing Mm -hmm. shows up there. And sometimes when it comes back, this was the real giveaway, it's not exactly in the same place. It'll move a little higher or to the Mm -hmm. other side. So what's causing that back pain? And together, they tend to have other symptoms. Not all of them, but two or more of the fertility issue or irritable bowel-type symptoms or chronic fatigue-type symptoms, Mm -hmm. um, migraine headaches. And when you connect all the dots, they point to the autonomic nervous system, the part of your nervous system that responds automatically to stimuli around you.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Like when you're being chased by a tiger, you don't have to think what to do. And then the opposite of fight or flight is the parasympathetic Parasympathetic. nervous Oh, you're on it.
0: Well, because I think of parasympathetic nervous system as, I think of parasympathetic as parachute, which is coming down.
1: Oh, that's really good. And sympathetic is what? what? The opposite.
0: The opposite. It's just like, which is where I spent most of my life until recently. Really? Oh, yeah.
1: You're parachuting? No. You're going the other (laughs) way. I was free falling. Oh, you were. (laughs) Sympathetic. (laughs) You need the parachute.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, it was intense. I can help with that. Things are getting
1: better. Well, if you're not being chased by a tiger, but your body's always sort of acting a little bit like you are, these symptoms start to happen. In terms of the muscles, what happens is your body's always taking blood flow away from your posture muscles that you don't need from an emergency, and it's bringing it to your arms and legs so you can run and fight. And over time, those muscles become hypoxic. They don't have enough oxygen, so they start to hurt. We do massage, bring the blood flow in there, and they feel good. But within a few days, your body's pretending like you're being chased by a tiger. So it pulls all that blood flow out and brings it to your arms and legs. Same thing with your fertility and your digestion. If you're running from a tiger, your body says, this is not a great time to have a donut or a baby.
0: Right. I I never would have thought of that with the fertility. But I have personally experienced that with the stomach and with IBS. Because I would I had no idea that I was just totally offline with my stomach forever. Mm-hmm. And then I would sit I would get on a massage table and then immediately you would hear the like gurgling and oh, you're like, yeah. Oh wow. There's a connection. It, it's there's like it's coming back.
1: Do you when it happens, do you get massage in your digestive tract, external massage around your stomach? I used to. Was it helpful for you?
0: It was. But yeah. I never wanted to go because I had IBS and I would just was afraid I was gonna fart over the room. Yeah. Wow. And then the same with yoga. I'd be like, well, I'd go to yoga for my IBS, except I have IBS and I'm going to fart all over this room.
1: Oh yeah, and you right, and so you can't really do that but on your own.
0: The breathing stuff really, really helped. I actually did. This is going. We are off roading. Everybody, are you sure? Um, Patsy Rodenberg is this incredible uh, Shakespeare teacher, and I mean she's just world class, and she's one of Judy Dench's coaches, and. Mm. Uh, I did a three day workshop with her, and it was all about, you know, connecting the breath to voice. And after doing her breathing exercises, my stomach was so much better. Yeah. Like it was, it, that was insane because it, it was the same idea of like, oh, there's like oxygen going back to that part of my body.
1: So it's interesting that you say that because breathing is one of the only um, functions that is both. Under the voluntary autonomic nervous system, and voluntary nervous system and autonomic nervous system. So, voluntary is normally skeletal muscles. If you want to walk, talk, dance, move. Autonomic is the sympathetic and parasympathetic balance. It's your automatic reply to the stimuli around you, right? But breathing can be both. Breathing happens autonomically. You don't normally think about it, but if you want to, you could take that deep breath, right? So it's your portal of entry to taking control over that automatic nervous system. And you can then shift. You can set the tone with your breathing and say, Hey, body, I don't know what you're responding to, but we're okay right now. And when you use your breath to set that tone, all the other things change too. The blood flow does go back to your postural muscles, and the blood flow does go back to your digestive system. Your body starts to maintain itself. The nickname for the parachute, the parasympathetic nervous system, is the feed and breed system. Because mm. when you're there, that's when your body does maintenance on itself.
0: I when I was in birth, uh, when I was in birth, when I was giving birth, f- 16 days ago, wouldn't it be funny? I'm going to listen back and be like, every time I brought up my birth, I said it was a different number of days. Ago, I'm <laughs> so tired, like a year ago, I can't track anything.
1: Um, <laughs> your kids in college? Uh,
0: oh yeah, probably. <laughs> so I. Would always forget to breathe, you know, and so I'm sure you guys as doulas like are constantly bringing it back to the breath Mm -hmm. because I would just hold tight.
1: Yeah, because that's how you take control and tell your body we're okay. I think like a giant chunk of my job as a doula is to help you feel safe, help you convince your body that despite all that intensity— You're safe. You're not in danger. And then you could not fight it and try to move away from your contractions, but you can settle into them and relax Mm -hmm. and let them be more productive.
0: I'm curious, when you are working with a mom on the table, do you have a sense of—if they are hoping for an unmedicated birth, do you ever have a sense as to whether or not you think that will happen? Because I, what I want to say is, like, I was on your table, we get a half ago, and I was really scared because— no, not a week and a half ago. See, every week. <laughs> three weeks ago, whatever, four whatever. weeks ago, yeah. recently. And um, my baby was sunny side up still. Yes. And we were talking and you were asking, because <laughs> my stomach was so hard and you were like, why? Because I was like, yeah, they call it irritable uterus. And you're like, well, why is it so angry with you? Yes. And I was like, I don't know. I was surprised by how much fear was sort of tumbling out of my mouth during our session. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of whether or not a mother will end up having an unmedicated birth and how much does f- fear have to play into it
1: so part of it is luck right you you but but i think it's the smaller part i think normally when you get in your car and drive someplace you can expect that you're going to end up there but we all know there's a tiny chance that you're going to get steamrolled by an 18 wheeler and not get there right in childbirth, I think there's a lot of focus on the things that can go wrong or the things that you won't be able to handle, and it's it's an unusually large spotlight on generally small risks for someone young, strong, and healthy like you. Those risks are not really there unless there's you know a warning sign. If you're driving and the indicator light goes on, then you respond to that. Unless you're my husband. And he keeps driving?
0: No. We've had, like, the maintenance light on our car for, like, months now. Anyway, continue. No.
1: We have the one on our car, but it's because they set it to go off when you're supposed to See, do the oil change. But then it. I go on YouTube and find out how to reset so, it. Well, there you go. But it's a lease. So.
0: That's it. Yeah. That's what he says. It's a lease. Anyway. Not my mess. I um, <laughs> <laughs> was it saying? Hey, we're all on a lease. <laughs> that's <right>. um,
1: <laughs> I'm on a short lease. Um, so... I look at a few things. I look at number, and and there's no way to know until you get there. I think most people who really want to do it, one of the big things actually is not being too hellbent on one way or the other. When you're yes. so rigid, like this is how my birth is going to go, what I'm more worried about than anything is you letting yourself down. Because you don't know. I love to set a birth plan, a birth intention, but normally I think those Those people who are so rigid are just focused on what I think is page one of the birth plan. Like, this is how I want it to go. And sure, we should do everything we can to make it go that way. And it could be that you want, you know, to squat in a strawberry field with nobody around you and have your baby. Or it could be you want an elective cesarean, your prerogative. That's, we live in a free country. You you get the information, you make an informed choice, and it's our job to support whatever choice you make. But if you want to have that natural childbirth, unmedicated, then I look at a few things in my mind. Number one is um, your general anxiety level. If your anxiety runs really high, it's harder to relax and feel safe and let your body do its thing. If your anxiety tends to run low, that's a little bit better for you, right? Number two is your pain tolerance, because there's pain there. And um, if your pain tolerance is really high, that's obviously going to work better for you. If your pain tolerance is really low, it's going to work against you. Although in all these, you know, I've seen people with high anxiety and low pain tolerance still power through labor You're looking and at her. No. <laughs> no, here's. seriously.
0: I have a very low uh, threshold for pain. For pain? Um, and my anxiety has gotten much better. I think for me um, well, I when I was saying going back to like all the fear that was tumbling out of my mouth. I think I hadn't really recognized how much the modified bed rest and like being at risk for preterm labor had like gotten into my head. Like that freaked me out in a way that I wasn't really processing or totally aware of, which was like, I could go into labor at any second. And will my baby be ready for that? And, or will I end up in the hospital for months? You know, that kind of thing. Um, That's scary. Yeah. And I just hadn't let that go. So, how does working on the body help release that stuff?
1: I'll tell you that. The, just the third component yes. that I didn't get to was because the. I interrupt all you, the time. You steamrolled right over me. Oh, yeah. But luckily, I'm not nearly postpartum. So I'm still on.
0: You can like hold on to threats. I, I can never hold could. For
1: a minute. I'm a little ADD. So, um, yeah. So the third one is your, and it's, it's, I wanted to get back to it because it's really important is your ability to surrender, which means let go of control. And I see a lot of moms who are very powerful, strong, physical, like, a, like an ox, have low anxiety, but control freaks. Mm-hmm. They sometimes have a hard time in labor because mm-hmm. they, their, their preparation, and the reason I look at these is like I kind of want to look at how can I help you get ready in the best way possible. If you have a low tolerance for pain, we can work on that. We can increase your tolerance for pain. A lot of times it's more in your mind than anything as well. Mm-hmm. You, if you have pain times fear, it's a lot worse than if you have pain and you're, you're not afraid. Yeah, Much more tolerable. So that control piece is really huge. If somebody so, has yeah. a hard time letting go, I have these moms who can run a marathon, no problem. That's a huge physical and mental endurance. The difference is they know if they've run six, there's 20 miles left to go. In labor, you don't get that.
0: No
1: idea. You don't know how long, and they're con- they can't get out of the neocortex, the part of your mind that mm-hmm. analyzes how much longer. And mm-hmm. if this is how I feel at six centimeters, how am I going to feel at eight? It doesn't matter.
0: So this is what I did because I am a control freak. Also, yes. <laughs> my tricks are. This is my listeners are laughing at me <laughs> because I did it with both births. Eye mask. Okay. I wear an eye mask like the entire time I'm in the hospital. Okay. So that I don't see what's around me. And my doula Carmen actually said, "Well, that's also getting you out of that part of your brain, yeah, because you're not looking at all it's this stuff, track. and it's you, it shuts down that part of your brain and brings you back to like a reptilian,
1: yeah, the older part of process. your brain, the limbic system.
0: So that was the one thing I did just uh, I made up on my own with the first <laughs> birth and carried on to the second. The other thing was not knowing how far along I was with both births.
1: You, you didn't get I, checked, or you I got you asked checked, them not to and tell I you. told them
0: not to Don't tell me." Tell me. Yeah. Because that was same thing. very helpful.
1: Keeps you out of your head. Keeps me out of my head. Analyze.
0: And then the mantra again and again is, it's only a day. It's only a day. It's only a day. Um, or in the case of this last birth, that was only four hours. Wow. Was, uh, my dude ended up saying, it's only till brunch. <laughs> I <was laughs> like, okay, we can do that. Wow. Um, but same idea. And I, I actually told another girlfriend once who also— likes to control things in the way that I do. And this is probably a messed up thing to say, but for me, it's like being drunk in the back of a cab.
1: What labor is?
0: Yes. Like it's the best way I can describe just giving over all control. Mm -hmm. Like that's my version of surrender, which is really messed up maybe. But this idea of like, I'm not in charge. I'm not driving right now. I am just experiencing it, and I'm going to hope that I get there. And if not, someone will take me where I need to
1: be. Um, <laughs> well, there's a continuum. On one side is 100% control, and on the other side is 100% surrender. I'm not sure why I'm using yeah. my hands on this podcast. Like but um, everything that you do to control takes away from your ability to surrender. So when I moms are like, oh, I really want to have it before this date or after this date, or I want to have that doctor or that nurse. I'm like, that will be nice, but give it up. Like, it give doesn't, it you know, if you're trying to control it, you're not going to be able yeah. to surrender as well. It's true.
0: And the best thing if you're a control freak is to have, I think, like the mama bear or, in your case, the daddy bear doula who can, I I need someone big that I can lean on and be like, take care of me. Like
1: I think just, I fit that description.
0: Yeah, you're totally yeah. a daddy bear. i mm,
1: big so lean on kind Papa of guy. bear.
0: So that is also
1: helpful. Yeah. Body work helps for a lot of reasons. Number one, um, when I can when I can do something that's intense to a muscle, right, to release it, um, and at first you're scared of it, and you react to that pain with a lot of fear, then I can help you breathe through it and relax into it. And you see that when you don't fight yourself, it's much more tolerable. So... That's even pre-labor, something that just gives you an idea of what it feels like when you fight yourself and what it feels like when you surrender.
0: You were doing some work on my stomach, and it was so painful.
1: On your, yeah, your hip flexors.
0: And that was, like, so brutal. And uh, you had the best advice ever, which was say yes through a smile. Mm -hmm. And so I did that uh, in my latest birth uh, with Eliza, and (laughs) I kept going, Yes. Yes. And then like a minute later, I'd be like, uh, Adam, just so you know, like I'm not actually enjoying this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you have to clarify.
0: <laughs> He's like, yeah, I know.
1: It makes a huge difference. In phone sales, they they know that you close more sales when you're smiling. And um, how does that affect? It's a phone, but it's because it changes your whole body, your whole demeanor. And so when your contraction comes and you say no, you're telling your body this is not good. We want to fight it. But if you say yes, even if you don't fully believe yourself.
0: I did a lot of yeses.
1: It opens you up. It helps you. I did realize. a lot
0: of yeses in that bathtub before I
1: projectile vomited <laughs> three times. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, each one probably got you a centimeter.
0: <gasps> Great point.
1: Yeah, you can puke a centimeter.
0: What? Well, I got out of the tub. I mean, Carmen had to pull me out of that tub, and then they tested, or they checked me, and then they were like, yeah, you're not getting back in that tub. Time to go. Time to go.
1: See, at but home, I, they would have been like, get back in the tub. See, yeah.
0: Yeah, I know. That would have been nice. Mm. Because then I got to pop my own water. You, what, do you mean, what does that s- mean? You broke your water? I broke my, broke my water. Have you had moms do that?
1: No. What do you no, mean? Do you put the hook inside? No, I just think? had to you push. You just pushed until it broke? Okay.
0: Yeah, four times. It was, For
1: the purpose of breaking it? Yeah. Why? Did wh- who, What was the rug? <laughs> I don't know. Was um, it really? Because it
0: was, we were ready to push.
1: But your water it was hadn't so, weird.
0: Broken my away. water hadn't broken. My mm, so had and my doula were like, "We're gonna try this." I just you know, had a to birth like that.
1: We waited just about ten more minutes, and oh, the and baby came out awesome. in the sack.
0: See, that's what would have been so cool.
1: Yeah, that was amazing.
0: Those are so neat on YouTube. Now yeah, I feel chipped
1: We weren't filming, but. uh
0: yeah, you could have gotten some views out of that no, one.
1: That's true. Um,
0: and then she got caught on the lip a few times. Cervical lip? Yeah.
1: it's another reason you sort of wait a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so but well, you might not get brag. it out by brunch. So.
0: Yeah, good point. I wouldn't be able to brag about the four hours. Oh, no. <laughs> and by the way, everyone, giving birth is all about the brag. Um, so
1: <laughs> I'm all about the brag.
0: I want to talk to you about... Because these are two subjects that we have not talked about on Atomic Moms, and we've had like a hundred and almost fifty episodes. Wow, that's a brag. Uh, yeah, I mean, Stand breaking right—that's right? a lot of. It's a lot of episodes. Yeah. Um, okay, we've never really talked about a breech birth. Okay, and we haven't talked about VBACs.
1: I know about those two things.
0: You know a lot about these two things.
1: It's all weird for me because I am a big hairy dude, and I'll never give birth. But um, I can, sign- I can relate to you guys a lot.
0: Yeah. How so? Other than your wife of well, one with time four and-
1: I had leftover Chinese food and uh, leftover Mexican food, and it wasn't enough to make a meal, so I just like smushed them all together, uh-huh. and I had like kung pao enchiladas. Uh-huh. It was really late. I went to bed, and I woke up having contractions like every four minutes apart, you know, um, lasting about thirty seconds apiece with um, significant rectal pressure and all. There so, <laughs> you go.
0: That's the closest I'll probably ever come to the Ring of Fire.
1: To the Ring of Fire, Um, (laughs) no. But I, you know, I watch. I I get attached to people. You're very like you're. You have a lot of receptor sites. You're very Mm -hmm. warm, and it's really easy to get attached to you and care. So that makes it a lot harder for me.
0: What? What? Wait. What makes it what harder?
1: Um, That I start to care about people. If I wouldn't care, it would be back like. Look, when I was uh, working in ambulances in 19, 20, 21 years old, it's not that I didn't care. It's just like I had a job to do. Right. And I just focused on doing it. And all the like intensity of the fact that somebody might be near death or there's a lot of blood and you got to control it just didn't bother me. But um, when I work with somebody through the pregnancy, I, I sort of start to get attached and I care. And so uh, then if I'm... You know, at a birth, which is a giant honor in itself to be invited to someone's birth, uh, you really just go through it with them. Usually, by the time it's over, I am crying, I'm bawling mm. when that baby comes out and she tri- triumphed. You know, yeah, I'm just, I lose it. They're like, "Hey, Doctor B, come take a picture." I'm <laughs> 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 right? Oh, okay, those two kinds of birth: breach and VBAC.
0: Yeah, let's start with breach.
1: Okay, breach is if a baby's not head down. Right, And so, technically, I mean, they could be transverse, just lying sideways in there with nothing Mm -hmm. down by the cervix. But usually, it's either butt down or foot down. And if the butt is down, the feet can also be down, like the baby's doing a cannonball, which is called a complete breech. Or both feet can be up by the face, like it's doing a pike dive. I was about to say a pike. Pike dive, um, which Uh. is a little more common. Uh, And so... Normally, at 28 weeks, babies usually move around a lot. And at 28 weeks, almost half of them are still breached. So there's people sometimes come in to me at 28 weeks. Oh, my God, my baby's Mm breached. I'm like, come back in a month. Uh, And at 32 weeks, almost 90% of babies are head down. So that big migration takes place between 28 and 32 weeks because the babies are running out of space. Mm -hmm. And they can't move about the cabin as freely. They have to pick a position. (laughs) The shape of the baby and the shape of the uterus makes head down typically the most comfortable position and also the easiest way to get them out so if you're still breech at 32 weeks that's when we sort of start to take action there's no emergency still because about 90% head down at 32 weeks and 96 to 97% at birth so just putting that in easy numbers for someone who's not sleeping through the night
0: (laughs) how many kids do I have
1: I don't know and when did you have them Uh, 10 out of 100 babies roughly are breached at 32 weeks, and only 3 or 4 at birth out of 100 are breached. So more than half the babies that are breached at 32 weeks will turn. The earlier we start trying to make the environment ripe for turning, Mm -hmm. the greater success we see in babies ending up head down. So from a non-medical perspective, all we do in our office is what we always do improve the function of your muscles and bones in your low back, hips, and pelvis, because the baby should want to get head down. We do massage and we do adjustments and we do this acupuncture stuff. Uh, medically, if the baby still breech at thirty-seven weeks, they can manually try to turn the baby inside your belly. So they're just mm-hmm. literally pushing the butt one way and the head the other way and seeing if the baby will turn. And Sometimes,
0: by, by the way, everybody. Um, Atomic Moms guest, Becca, uh, who we followed through her pregnancy uh, this year, she had that, and she did the turn. And it worked? And it worked. And then she had to go straight into labor.
1: Oh, right afterwards? Oh, so they sometimes do it at 39 weeks and then induce you right away if it works. Um, But at 37, if it works, they'll just send you home. Uh, and sometimes there's structural reasons for breach. The cord could be short, the placenta could be in the baby's face, the fluid could be on the higher side or lower side, which both lend towards breach. You know, There could be a variation in the shape of the uterus. There's some things you just can't overcome, and you can't necessarily see them. If the baby stays breech all the way to the end, you really should have two choices. Um, one is a cesarean breech birth, and one is a vaginal breech birth. Not all breech babies are safe to deliver vaginally, so all the doctors and midwives who do breech birth vaginally have criteria. It's called selective breech delivery. They look and make sure there are certain things that are going to prevent the risks of vaginal breech birth or to minimize those risks. Um, But most doctors today and many midwives don't have that training anymore. We sort of stopped training in 2001. So unless you're with an old-timer who still has the experience and, and confidence and never really stopped doing it, that choice is slowly disappearing.
0: And what happened in 2001 uh, to make them go out of fashion? <clears throat> like, did yeah. suddenly everyone start suing? Like, what What was the reason?
1: Not exactly. In 2001, there was a study. Look, cesareans used to not be safe. Go back 120 years, and they were not safe, right? Women died or babies died or both. In fact, when we started doing cesareans, it was because a woman died while she was pregnant, and we said, let's cut her open and see if we can save the baby. That's how that originated, Um, now they're safe. And we got really good at doing them. They're not difficult. We have better stitching. We have better techniques. We have better antiseptics. Um, You know, nobody's really, of course, there's the weird, obscure, you know, death or major complication from cesarean like anything else, but they're safe. And so now that they're safe, we try to look at different categories of women and say, Who has the type of pregnancy that would actually be better to deliver by cesarean than would be better to deliver vaginally? Certain, like let's say your placenta is sitting right on top of your cervix, placenta previa. If a baby tries to squish through there in a vaginal birth, there's a great risk of bleeding out and other trauma that's not worth taking, in most people's opinion. So most placenta previa's are done by cesarean section, and it's great. It actually takes a woman and baby who would be in a lot of danger and gives yeah. them a safe way thank to come God out. Thank God
0: for modern medicine.
1: Absolutely, yeah. 100%. And even with my past, I say thank God for modern medicine all the time. I right. appreciate it. I I respect it. Uh, so we take lots of different categories and try to figure out who's going to be better off with which type of birth. And so in 2001, uh, a study came out by Dr. Mary Hanna and colleagues from McGill University in Canada, and they essentially took about 1,000 women who were breached and had them deliver vaginally, and 1,000 women who were breached and delivered by cesarean, and they compared notes on the babies after birth, how they did health-wise. And they found that there was a small but statistically significant better outcome for babies who were born breached by cesarean than babies who were born breech vaginally. And based on the results of that one study, one study, both the United States and Canada got rid of breech birth. So now, well, <laughs> that study was analyzed and torn apart, and there's still debate about it. Yeah. In 2006, the United States sort of reversed their policy in saying that breech birth might be a good choice. I'll give you an example: a woman who's had two vaginal births with head-down babies, and her third baby, you know. I, I just had one, actually. She had two seven-hour births, bragging rights.
0: Yeah, pretty short. I mean, yeah. not as short as mine. Because, not as short as not, as I'm, as
1: I'm kidding.
0: Yeah. Moms, I'm kidding. Maybe
1: on her fourth. Um <laughs> Yeah, so she had two seven-hour births, uncomplicated. They were also seven-pound babies, roughly, Uh just natural, unmicated births. Mine was births. Eight
0: something but anyway. I'm oh,
1: wow. Hard she was court. eight. eight. Eight
0: eight. Yeah, but anyway, I how, how guys, I first? am kidding. Um, six nine.
1: Oh, I can't. The third will be.
0: Yeah, well, we're probably not doing that. But honestly, I think she came in four hours because I was so bad about doing my pelvic floor exercises, and I always <laughs> keep my sneeze. So you still do? <laughs> no, not now. Hmm. Um,
1: during pregnancy,
0: I did during pregnancy until I. This is another detour, but took. Um, finally got some pelvic floor physical therapy, but while I was pregnant. Oh. Um, And then stopped that once I was having these contractions, Oh, which might have.
1: I'm doing Kegel right now.
0: Are you? Yeah. I hate them. You do? I hate them.
1: I kind of once in a while.
0: I can't. uh, yeah, Yeah. Okay, wait. So back to this wonderful mom that you're talking about, and I'm being a smart ass.
1: Yeah. So she had two babies that were very uncomplicated, very, very good Labor and delivery experiences. Her third baby, also measuring roughly seven pounds, happened to be in a frank breech position, butt down, legs up in the air, which is the safest of them to deliver, the easiest. Uh, And she was with a doctor who just doesn't know how to do it. And so she ended up switching to a doctor who does have experience in doing it, and she had a pretty simple birth. But the the point is, the study, the original study was done on first-times, Moms. It was done in twenty-eight countries. Some countries, uh, some practices that don't have ultrasound, so you can't tell exactly what position the baby is, or they don't have NICU in case there is some complication during the birth to take care of the baby afterwards. You can't really apply that to every setting, like let's say Cedars Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. It's just it's different, or the fact that she's already had two uncomplicated births, which dramatically decreases the risks.
0: Are there a lot of doctors that are willing to do? Reach births now?
1: Most doctors today don't have the training.
0: So they still won't do it.
1: And the ones who have the training really kind of stopped around 2001. So there's a handful that never stopped.
0: So what do you do if you live not in Los Angeles? Like, let's say you live in a small town or—
1: Well, in some states, like- midwives still do it, and they never stop training. Wow. So you could have a midwifery birth. And in some oh, states, the, yeah. at home or at the hospital, there's places where midwives deliver in hospitals. Uh, and we have on our website, we actually have a growing list of pro- providers who still do vaginal breech birth, who still offer that as an option. Again, they do selection to make sure you're a good candidate. We don't want a baby to get stuck no. to come out of you and the head, gets stuck. We don't want a baby for the cord to come out first and then the baby comes and compresses the cord. So right. there's things that they look for to see right. if you're a good candidate or not. Some doctors will do it only if you've already had a successful vaginal birth. They call it a quote-unquote proven pelvis. Right.
0: That's kind of an obnoxious term.
1: All the obstetric terms are obnoxious. Mucus plug is obnoxious. Failure to progress. Irritable uterus. Hello. Bloody show. Bloody show is. That's hot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the VBAC. Vaginal birth after C section. Mm-hmm. Who's a candidate? And what are the benefits? Why? Like, do some moms. Like, is it. An unnecessary stressor at times, because a mom will say, like, oh, I had a C-section, there's there's a possibility that I could get a back, and then they start thinking about that all the time.
1: Yeah. There's everything under the sun. Yeah. Part of the question is, it's why really did you have then. the initial cesarean, okay. and what was that experience like? Um, a lot of women feel like they had a cesarean they didn't need and didn't want, and that can be pretty traumatic, both physically and emotionally. Um, again, I think cesarean is an amazingly good thing. The fact that we're able to do that safely means that somebody who needs one and has access to one, a miracle was basically done there. But all of the interventions, I think, are good use sparingly, only when somebody really needs it or really wants it. Um, and we overuse cesarean. We have like, in my opinion, we have almost a thirty-five percent cesarean rate. One in three women or more has their baby by C-section, and most of those women don't want it and arguably don't need it. I can understand if five percent of women would be better off having a cesarean, maybe even ten percent. I don't know the number for the different, like again, placenta previa or something else that happens. But I think 33 is really high, and that means a lot of women are having cesareans that they didn't want and didn't need. And sometimes having the vaginal birth after cesarean is really therapeutic for them, something that they need to heal from that trauma or want. Um, this also depends why you had the first cesarean in terms of the uh, safety and, and success chances of success in a VBAC. For example, if you have the previa where the cervix was blocked by your placenta, that's typically a non-recurring event. As long as in your next pregnancy, it's not blocking your cervix, there's not really any reason to think you wouldn't have a great vaginal birth. Um, The risk, the reason that they don't want to do them, the risk is that we've made a, a cut into the uterus. We've had to cut the uterus open to get the baby out, and they stitch it closed and it heals. But during the throes of labor, the next time when that uterus is contracting strong, hard, and close together, the concern is what if that scar starts to thin out and actually open up? And sometimes, it, what normally happens if that happens is it opens up slowly, but sometimes it actually pops, which can be a real serious emergency. They call it uterine rupture. Again, not a great term to go with the other terms. Um, <clears throat> So there's a concern, there's a risk. It's about, I think, overall about a half a percent risk for somebody who had a C-section to have a uterine rupture. There's some women who are higher for that risk, some women who are lower for that risk. There's ways to mitigate that risk, like not inducing or using Pitocin to create stronger, right. longer, harder I mean, contractions.
0: Can you do a VBAC if you are induced? You cannot, right?
1: If you want to have a VMAC, can you be induced? Is that the question? Yeah, um, it depends. You know, it's different protocols so for different okay. providers and different hospitals. Gotcha. Uh, you know, I know I know doctors who do it. For example, if they check her cervix and she's fifty percent effaced and three centimeters, and just so close, but her right. contractions are not quite active; they're not productive then they might give a little Pitocin. The great thing about Pitocin is that you can meter it. You can do, we give a tiny little dose and see how your baby and your body react to it and then wait a half an hour, 40 minutes. If you're doing great, we give a tiny little bit more. And it goes all the way from like 2 to 30 units. So you can start really small and if it's not if it's not if it's too much, we can just stop it and it's out of your it has a short half-life. It's out of your system pretty quickly.
0: And the benefits would be like an easier, an easier time with recovery, the potential that your milk will come in sooner? Like what are the benefits?
1: There's a lot of potential benefits. Again, if it's something that somebody really has their heart set on, something that they really want, the emotional and psychological benefits can be enormous. Um in terms of physical benefits, there's a lot of benefits to vaginal birth. Um, the way the baby comes through the birth canal and your pubic bones squeeze the brain center in the lungs and clear out the lungs, it's all the hormones of labor that lead up to that birth, the oxytocin and the, the adrenaline. Um, they have benefits for, for both mother and baby. Uh, the exposure to your microbiome as they come through the birth canal, which we're trying to mimic in C-sections, but to be able to, to develop their own bacterial flora, the good bacteria that you need for different functions in your body. There's uh, there's a lot of benefit there. Sometimes the recovery is a lot easier from a vaginal birth. Sometimes it isn't. Vaginal Sometimes birth Sometimes you got stitches
0: too. <laughs> yeah, I don't know really anything rea-
1: about that. You can have Just a kidding. lot of trauma from a vaginal birth yeah. and you can have very little trauma from a cesarean. It's not right. like That's not like one's very, a walk in the Very, very
0: important to say.
1: Yeah. It's not like one's a walk in the park and one's terrible. Yeah. But um you know, I think generally speaking, I see people recover faster, like, two days after they have the vaginal birth. They're walking around. They can start doing little exercise again. You know, you can lift your baby mm-hmm. and feed your baby and bond that way. Um, you're a lot—tend to tend to be a lot less medicated, even if you have medication.
0: What do you say to moms who end up having a C-section? Like, how—do you have any suggestions for them for how they can recover more easily?
1: Uh, after having a cesarean birth, um, you know, you, uh, no, you just you got to take it easy. You know, you give yourself the space. It's hard. Surround yourself with help and uh, rest as much as you can. Don't try to do too much. Give yourself time. Usually, you know, ten days, fourteen days after the cesarean, you're you're a lot different. You know, you're, you recover you're faster than I think most people think. Look, I have a lot of patients who dread the C-section. They think the recovery is going to be the worst thing ever. And then they end up having one for one reason or another. And they're like, oh, that wasn't actually too bad. And they actually schedule a repeat for the next baby. Um, And I have other people, one in particular, who pops out of my mind, who came into my office with a breech baby and terrible back pain. And she said, can you fix my back pain without getting my baby to turn head down? And I was baffled. I was like, why would you want that? And the reason she wanted it is she wanted to have a reason to have a cesarean. And I was like, you don't even need a reason. You could just ask for one. And she's sort of in the public light. She's like, no, I just want to have a reason for a cesarean.
0: That, whoa, but that's so big because it's like, God, what are we doing to moms? We're that, judgy. That we're so judgy that yeah. that would be, that you feel like you have to have that kind of, um, Reason like that, that you have to say that you didn't have a choice yeah. in order to be able to choose the thing you wanted to do because you're afraid. Because we're there's yeah.
1: She wanted to be. Oh, I needed to because her, how my do we baby deal with briefed. the
0: judgment, Doctor Berlin?
1: That's really tough. I think our society is a very judgy society and a very polarized society right now. Um, without getting too deep into politics, I just think politicians as a whole have us hating each other. They—they yeah. they thrive when we are polarized. And so I think the way you you not be judgy, and there's another thing in birth, which is that uh, sort of like when when you get married, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, guys, you got to get married. It's great. Like you want other people to do what you did. Right. Oh, you got to have kids. They're amazing. Um, so I feel like sometimes somebody has a certain type of birth. And then needs to feel like that was the right kind of birth. Mm-hmm. And so they want everybody else to kind of have that kind of birth, mm-hmm. too.
0: Or maybe to they just want them to feel how hard it
1: is. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't I'm know. Kidding, that's messed up. Stop being judgy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: I'm kidding. Um, because, yeah, it's it's so tricky talking about, I mean, it's your career. Um, I talk about it a lot on the podcast. But it's very delicate. hmm and even to talk about my own experiences, it's it's hard because you want to be like, okay, so they were unmedicated um, births. Uh, there were a lot of reasons that I went for it. I was also not attached to the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can feel tricky to talk about it all because everybody has a different experience, and they're all such personal experiences. Yeah. And then it's like it's so easy um, to seem— judgy or just to set someone off who's sensitive
1: yeah in my world the natural birth community there's so much over medicalization that probably doesn't need to happen like we talked about with the cesarean rate and I think a lot of it comes from good intentions by the way I don't think it's malicious but we see the fallout from that we see the women who are traumatized badly by it and you you Therefore, I think sometimes push back a little too hard, and so I think we're guilty as anybody else mm-hmm. at sometimes being like, "Oh, you? Why, why? do you want to have an epidural right away? Don't you know the downside of that?" Um, and so it's hard to find that balance. It's hard to just have an open, honest conversation without without having a point of view that you know may not be somebody else's point of view, and it's so sensitive and delicate. You just, I, you know, I, I. I find myself in this hard position, even supporting somebody in labor. Just two, no two people need the same thing. And I just pray all the time that I'll be able to bring to that birth what she needs to have, like, an empowered. That's, I think, the most. However the baby comes out of you, I think. It's a really—and the word is probably overused, but empowered, you should be in the driver's seat. Mm
0: -hmm. Even if you're drunk in the back of the cab, everyone.
1: Well, then then you might have the third baby.
0: I'm kidding. Exactly. (laughs) No, but you're—yes— to be in the—it's true. There's no greater gift than to be able to accept that your child is coming into the world in the way that they need to come in, but also that you feel safe and protected and like you have a voice in that.
1: I think that's so important, and, and it's not the model of medicine we're coming from. We come from a very paternalistic model of medicine where I will tell you what to do. But it's changing, I think, and in terms of childbirth, which is not really generally thought of as a medical event. Now it is, but it hadn't been. So it got sucked into that paternalistic, I will tell you what's best for you. And uh, women are kind of like rising up and moving back against that, which is amazing. I think it's great.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Berlin. Everybody, you can check out his website, informedpregnancy.com, on Facebook. He's got a Facebook page for it also, Informed Pregnancy, and on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Berlin. I appreciated that I could stream your podcast on that website and also that you had these great blogs that explained a lot of things.
1: Oh yeah. We work on those. Like my
0: group B strep.
1: <laughs> your Group B Strep. Oh yeah. Did you have a Group B strep for both? Yep. Oh. Did you do anything to try to not have groupie strap? No. Mm, that's that's going to be an upcoming plot.
0: Okay. Well, I was told not to do that. I was told not to trick the test.
1: It's a little controversial. Uh, controversial, yeah. but actually, some of the doctors we work with, if yeah. you test positive, will give you a week or two and see if you can test again. But it is true. the The current guideline is, if you test positive, we treat you as positive, no matter what. So
0: then I show up at the hospital. They finally give me the antibiotic. But then my daughter was born too fast. Yeah, it was
1: anyway. fast. It didn't have a chance to
0: kick Didn't in. have a chance, which w- I wish I had known.
1: And if it goes that fast, there's not really a concern anyway.
0: Oh, that's interesting. We stayed for the two days at the hospital because of just to monitor her.
1: Really? Yeah. Because you were positive, and because I didn't was get positive, the and she didn't get in the time? antibiotics uh-huh. in
0: time. And the pediatrician said that she had a a newborn that went home, and then a week later ended up in the hospital for a week. Uh-huh. But. If listeners out there, if you th- end up with a fast birth, just know, um, yeah, you have to have, be in labor for, like, eight hours for for the antibiotics. For two for doses. For two doses, of antibiotics, yeah. And I just wish I had known that because I was so stressed out about, like, h- having the time for that. Instead of realizing, like, well, no, whoops,
1: yeah, brunch, we yeah, have brunch, brunch. Well, brunch baby. We missed the antibiotics, but those eggs were delicious.
0: <laughs> Love the mimosa. <laughs> um, okay, you can also check out Dr. Berlin's new YouTube series, uh-huh. "The Real Midwives of Los Angeles." Yes. Uh, and everyone in L.A., if you've had a baby, I'm sh- you've probably already been to Dr. Berlin. <laughs> but if you haven't yet, go check out their practice. I'm a huge fan, and I'm also a huge fan of De Anza, who mm, is uh, one of his massage therapists who helped me so much when I was pregnant with Sabrina many moons ago, four years ago. Okay, listeners, until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms.